0: Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to our beloved Philemon, our dear friend and partner, to Ophia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I remember you in my prayers because I have heard of your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I have received much joy and encouragement from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. For this reason, although I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, that is, my own heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Far be it from me to remind you that you owe me your very own self. Yes, my brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. One thing more, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.
1: it is good to be back with you for a second week. I'd like to begin by having us imagine a scene together. I'd like us to picture the Apostle Paul. Tradition says he was short, bald, not very impressive in appearance. I'd like you to picture that man, and he's in prison. He's been thrown there for preaching the gospel, and this happened a lot. Paul was used to that. But today, the guard comes into his cell, and he says, Paul, you have a visitor. And the door opens, and a young man comes in, a teenager. And Paul recognizes him right away. His name is Onesimus, and he's a slave. After a little bit, the young man speaks. Paul, I'm in deep trouble. I've run away from my master. Will you help me? Can you picture that scene? And the emotion that would be in the room as those words are spoken? It is very likely that something very close to that scene actually happened in the days leading up to Paul's writing of the letter that was just read for us. Paul's writing of the letter to Philemon. Paul's letter to the slave owner. Our task today is to read this letter and to see what we can learn from Paul's response. We're doing this as the fourth part of a six-week series on the Bible, the most read book in history and yet a book that is most often misunderstood. And we, last week, talked about the big picture of the Bible, from Adam to the end— And what we came up with is that God has a plan for history. He has a plan to make us holy and blameless so that we can share in his love. And he's accomplished that plan through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. And our part in that plan takes place in the church as we go about the church's mission. Well, last week was the big picture. This week is the snapshot. We're going to see this plan in action. Paul in this letter is going to show us what it looks like to, to be living in light of this plan to correspond to it. Before we get to that, though, we need some background. And so let's start with Paul himself. Where is he at? He's in prison. And scholars debate about which prison he's in. It's um, debated, but it seems likely that the prison is Ephesus. Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. It was a major hub, and he liked to go to the big cities. Ephesus today is on the coast of what is Turkey on the Mediterranean. He's writing a letter to Philemon, who is a slave owner, and also someone Paul knows. From the people that Paul mentions in the letter, we know that Philemon lives in Colossae, which is about 80 miles from Ephesus. And we can tell quite a bit about Philemon from what Paul says in the letter. We can tell, for example, that he's a Christian, and that Paul knows him because it's very likely that he was converted through Paul's ministry. After all, Paul spent a lot of time in Colossae. He knew the church there pretty well. It's the same town to which he would write his letter to the Colossians. And so it seems that Philemon was one of Paul's converts. He's a Christian because of Paul. And he's a good Christian. Paul speaks highly about him. He talks about him, about his faith in Jesus, about his love for the people. And not only that, Philemon's a leader in the church. He's a good example. And we can tell some other things about Philemon. We can tell that he is wealthy. We can tell that because he has a a house big enough for a church to meet in, and only the wealthy had houses that big. And, of course, we can tell he's wealthy because he has a slave, Onesimus. Now, the name Onesimus is probably a nickname because the word in Greek means useful. And so if Onesimus was here among us, we might call him Mr. Useful. He was a handyman. But if we really want to understand what's going on with Anisimus, we have to understand what's going on with ancient slavery. Now, most of us hearing this sermon are Americans, so when we think of slavery, we have images in our mind from American history, which means the Old South before the Civil War. I think Gone with the Wind or Twelve Years a Slave. That slavery was identified with racism and racial identity, and it was particularly harsh and cruel Historically. Slavery in the ancient world was not necessarily like this. It was very possible in the ancient world to have two people of the same race as master and slave. Think of the movie Gladiator, for example. We had people of the same race with one of them the master and the other the slave. In the ancient world, slavery was not about race. It was about power, particularly economic power and political power. For example, if you... We were at war with another nation, and your nation won. You often would take the citizens of the losing nation as your slaves to show that you had power over them. This is exactly what we see when Babylon invades Israel. They take a lot of Israelites back to Babylon as their slaves in the Old Testament. Or you sometimes see people into slavery when they're taken advantage of because they're in a vulnerable position. You see this at the end of Genesis. Israel, there's a famine in the land, so the Israelites go down to Egypt for help, for food. And they're welcomed there initially, but after a while, the Egyptians realize that they can take advantage of them, and they begin to make them their slaves. And that's how the book of Exodus starts. And if you were weak or vulnerable or needy, you were very likely to fall into slavery. There was no social safety net in the ancient world. So if you had debt there was no bankruptcy protection for you. You may become a slave of the person you owe money to. Or if you were an orphan or a child with no family or a widow, it's possible if you fell into the wrong hands that you could end up in slavery. This is how slavery worked in the ancient world, and it was almost universal. Every culture, with very few exceptions, had slavery as part of it. It was part of the wiring of the ancient world. And so when Paul and the other Christians brought the gospel into the ancient world, they brought it into a world defined by slavery. In fact, the distinction between master and slave was one of the main and key social distinctions of the ancient world. It's how you figured out who was who. Some people were masters. Some people were slaves. Some people had power. Some people were weak. Some people mattered, and other people did not. Now, we don't know why Onesimus is a slave. Perhaps he was born into slavery. Perhaps he fell into it as a child. We really have no idea. But we do know this. Onesimus wants to be free. And he wants to be free so badly that he's willing to risk everything to be free. He's run away from his master, and he knows when he runs away, he knows that everything's on the line. If they catch him, He will be severely punished, and he may even be killed. Everything's at stake for Onesimus. And when he runs, he runs 80 miles from Colossae to Ephesus, and he finds Paul. Now, why does he run to Paul? Well, it seems clear from the letter that Onesimus is a Christian as well. And it's very likely that he was converted in Philemon's house. After all, he was part of the household as a slave. And so he met Paul there. And when Philemon was converted, Onesimus was as well. And the fact that Onesimus runs to Paul tells us something about the way Paul treated Onesimus when they were together. It tells us that Paul didn't treat Onesimus like a slave. Why do you run to Paul? Because he treats you like a human. He treats you like an equal. You run to Paul because you think he's going to support you in your quest for freedom. After all, Paul is the person who says in Galatians 3.28, in Christ, there are no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. All those distinctions, they've been erased. They've been undone. We are one in Christ Jesus. Onesimus knows this. He knows that Paul sees the world through a different lens. Paul doesn't see the world through the lens of the culture around him. Paul sees the world through the lens of Jesus. And so this takes us back to our room. Onesimus has run away from his master, and he's in deep trouble. And he's run to prison, and he's run to Paul. And he's asking Paul to help. And the response that Paul gives is the letter. And we have this letter. It's in our Bible, and it's also on the back of your bulletin today. Paul's argument, and the heart of it, begins in verse 6. So let's start there. It begins with his prayer. And Paul says this. He says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Now, the word translated as partnership in this verse Is an important one. In the original Greek, that word is koinonia. Sometimes you see it translated as partnership, sometimes you see it translated as fellowship, sometimes as sharing. It shows up a lot in Paul's letters. He uses it all the time. It's a really important concept for him. And he uses it in two ways. The first way Paul uses koinonia is as a description for how we relate to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. He thinks that when we're saved, when we become Christians, we have koinonia with Christ in the Spirit. We have fellowship with them. We have partnership with them. We share in their lives. This is exactly what he says, for example, in Colossians 1.9. He says, God is faithful, and by him you were called into the koinonia of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. To have koinonia with Christ is to be one with Christ. You exist in Christ, and he exists in you. It's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 2 in one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live by the, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. I am in Christ, and Christ lives in me. That's koinonia. We are one with him. He lives in us and works through us. And the same thing is true with the Spirit. Paul talks about this in Philippians 2 when he talks about us sharing with the Spirit. The Spirit's in us and the Spirit works through us. That's koinonia with the Spirit. We have fellowship. We become the Spirit's partners as the Spirit goes about fulfilling God's plan in the world. This is how Paul uses koinonia. And then he uses it in a second way, drawn, drawn from the first. Because we have fellowship with Christ and the Spirit, because we're the partners of Jesus and the Spirit. Paul thinks that we have koinonia with one another. The church has koinonia with its members. We live in fellowship with one another. We share one another's lives. This is exactly what it means to be the church. We are one with one another. And that makes total sense. What defines you as a Christian? It's not something you do. It's not your race. It's not your class. It's not how much money you make. It's not your power. What makes you a Christian? It's Jesus in the Spirit. And you have Jesus. I have Jesus. We are one in Christ Jesus. He's the point of connection between us. You have the Spirit. I have the Spirit. We are one in the Spirit. That's what it means to be the church. You are one body because you share one Christ and one Spirit. We have koinonia. We have fellowship. We're partners as we are caught up in God's plan for the world. We are one. Now, Paul sees this oneness this unity that we have in Christ and the Spirit as central to the mission of the church. After all, if we are divided from one another, if we let the cultural divisions like race and class and money and power, if we let these things define us, then why would anyone in the world think that we're any different than them? If the church is going to preach one God and one Christ— And it's going to tell people that there's one way to salvation, then Paul thinks it better live as one body in unity, in koinonia. Otherwise, the message is going to fall flat. And so we have to strive for this unity, he says. A famous passage about this is in Ephesians 4, right at the beginning. Listen for Paul's emphasis in this passage that I'm about to read on oneness and unity. I beg you, he says, to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. What do you think Paul's point is? Be one. This helps us understand what Paul does in the verses that follow in this letter after verse 6. The division between Paul and Onesimus, Paul thinks, stands in contradiction to the gospel they both claim to believe. They are one in Christ Jesus, but their division stands in denial of that. And so Paul thinks they need to be reconciled. They need to be brought together, and they have to be brought together in the right way. So in verse 8, Paul says that he could command Philemon to let Onesimus go. He has that authority, after all. He's an apostle. He could order Philemon to release him. But if Paul did that, he would just be using the same kind of dynamics that Philemon uses over against Onesimus. There would be no reconciliation. It would just be power. And there wouldn't be true oneness. And so that's why Paul says in verse 9, he says, I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. Paul doesn't want Philemon to release Onesimus because he has to or because he's forced to. He wants Philemon to release Onesimus Because he recognizes that he is one in Christ Jesus with Onesimus. He wants him to see Onesimus through the lens of Jesus. He wants him to see that he is not a slave. But as he says in verse 15, he's more than a slave. He's a beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is Paul's objective. And what Paul Is showing us here. He's showing us what it looks like to see the world and to see the people in the world through the lens of Jesus. The things that divide us from one another, things like class and gender and and power and money and ability, all those distinctions, even the distinction of master and slave. They've been wiped away in Christ Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, From now on, we regard no one from a human point of view. If anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. This is how we see other people. We see them as new. We see them in Christ. We don't see them in light of all the power dynamics or divisions that define our world. We look at them in light of Jesus. We look at them in light of the Spirit. We look at them with eyes Oriented to God's plan for history, as shown us in the Bible. We look at people and we say, They are our brother. That's my sister. We are family, children of the one God. And if you are family, you live like family. And Paul shows us what it looks like to live like family in verse 17 and 18. Verse 17, Paul says So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Now look at what Paul's doing here. Paul is putting himself right into the middle of the broken relationship that exists between Philemon and Onesimus. And he's standing there at his own expense. He's doing it so that they can be reconciled to one another. And he's putting his credibility on the line. He's telling Philemon, if you consider me your partner in Christ, if we truly are one in Christ and the Spirit, if this is really true, then you welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. Think about how radical a move that is. Paul is an apostle. He is one of the great leaders of the early church. And he is directly identifying himself with a slave. He is standing in the place of a slave. And he's putting the slave in his own place. Welcome him as you would welcome me. Paul is turning the social divisions that define the ancient world upside down. And he's doing it at great cost. If he has wronged you or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, I'm putting my own stamp on this. I will repay it. Paul, will you help me? I've run away from my master. I'm in deep trouble. Onesimus, my child, I will take the burden from you. I will stand in your place. This is what true love looks like. And where did Paul learn how to love people like this? He learned it from Jesus. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. As he says in Philippians 2, Jesus did not consider his equality with God something to be exploited. But he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't consider his own status as something to be held to or preserved, but he emptied himself of it so that he might stand in our place, so that he might bear the burden of our own sins, so that he might reconcile us to the Father at his own expense, even when it cost him his life. When Paul puts himself in the place of Onesimus, he is following the example that Jesus set. And Paul is doing exactly what he says we should do in Ephesians 5.1. He says, be imitators of God beloved, as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice God, Live in love as Christ has loved us. This insight leads us to the last part of the story. They didn't have a postal service in the ancient world. And so who do you think carried the letter from Paul to Philemon? I am sending him. That is my own heart. Back to you. The person who carried the letter most likely was Anisimus himself. Paul sends him back. Now can you imagine that conversation when Paul told him? (laughs) Anisimus, I have an answer for you. I'm gonna write a letter. And here it is. And you're going to take it back to your master. And I know you don't want to go. I know you're afraid. I love you, Onesimus. I want you to know that. You're like a son to me. You're my heart. But you and Philemon, you are one in Christ Jesus. You belong to one church, one body. You proclaim one gospel. For the sake of that gospel, for the sake of that church, for the sake of Jesus, you have to be reconciled with him. You have to go back. What's Paul doing here? He's taking one hand, and he's reaching out to Anissimus. And he's saying, I'm with you. I will bear the burden with you. I will not let you go. I love you. And he's reaching out with the other hand to Philemon. And he's saying, I love you. You're my brother. And I can command you, but I don't want to do that. I want you to do this out of love. I want you to see Onesimus with Christ's eyes. And if there's money in the way, if there's something preventing you from seeing him as you should, I'll pay it. I'll bear that cost. And so he's reaching out to one and he's reaching out to the other, and he's bearing the cost in order to reconcile them. And this is what it looks like to love, because this is love in the pattern of Jesus. And the point of this letter, as we read it today, is that we are called to do the exact same thing. The church's mission in this world is to bring the good news of Jesus to the people outside of this church. That's our purpose. That's why we exist. And the only way we're going to preach a gospel that tells people that they can be reconciled to God is if we live lives that demonstrate reconciliation. To be reconciled is to bring people together. We have to live lives that bring people together. That's what it looks like to imitate Jesus. And one of the ways we can imitate Jesus in this way is to find all the broken places in this world and put ourselves right in the middle of them. We look for places where sin has torn people apart, places where society has divided one another, the powerful from the weak, the people who matter from the people who don't. We look for people in need, spiritual need, social need. We look for the runaways. And we identify with them directly. We put ourselves right in the middle of their lives. We make their cause our cause. And we do it at our own expense. We do it at great cost. We do this so that we can be a church that points people to Jesus, not only in what we say, but in the way that we live. And the only way we can do this outside the church is if we're also doing it inside the church. Church is where you learn how to love people like Jesus. It's what it means to be the body. It's what it means to share one Christ and one spirit. And how do we do that? Paul says that in Philippians 2. He says that we should do nothing from vain ambition or selfish conceit, but that in humility we should regard other people as better than ourselves. We look not to our own interests, but we look to the interests of others. In Galatians 6, he says, what does this look like in action? It looks like bearing one another's burdens. That's what it means to be the church. It means putting yourselves in each other's lives, to have koinonia, fellowship, to share your lives together, to bear the cost of community. And the beauty of this is that you don't have to be an apostle to do it. Every person in this church can do this. Because we all encounter broken places and broken people in our lives. We all see people who've been marred by sin. We all know people who are in need. We all know people who are hurt, who are running away from something or another. We see it everywhere we go. And our job is not to run away from these people. It's not to block off our life and create a, a space of our own. Our job, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, is to live with hearts wide open. Our job is to put ourselves right in the middle of their lives. Our job is to run to the pain, to bear the cost of it, to embody Jesus in the middle of it this kind of love makes a difference. This kind of love testifies to the God who is working all things out through Jesus. Well, what happened in the case of Philemon and Onesimus? We can't really be positive, but we have a few clues. The very fact that the letter to Philemon exists tells us that Onesimus probably delivered it. Which tells us that he probably did what Paul asked him to do. And we have some clues in scripture that Philemon also did what Paul asked him to do. Onesimus is mentioned one more time in the New Testament. It's in Colossians 4. And in that passage, Paul is sending him to Colossae to help with the church there. And that makes us think He's free, and he's helping Paul, just like Paul requested. And we have one other clue, and this is admittedly a bit speculative. We can't be sure. But we know that Paul wrote this letter sometime between the 50s and 60s of the first century. And if Onesimus was a young man, he could have lived several more decades, perhaps even into the beginning of the next Century. Well, there's a letter written about the year 105 by a church father by the name of Ignatius of Antioch. And the letter is to the church in Ephesus. And in the opening part of this letter, here's what Ignatius says He says, I received therefore your whole church in the name of God through Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love, and your bishop in the flesh whom I ask you by Jesus Christ to love and that you would all seek to be like him. And blessed be the God who has granted you to be so worthy to have such an excellent bishop. Now we can't be sure that this is the same Onesimus. But the time frame fits and the location fits. And if it's him, then this slave has become a leader. He's become a bishop of the church. And he's become a man who is known for his inexpressible love. And if it's him, we know where he learned how to love like that. He learned it from Paul. who learned it from Jesus. May the same thing be said of us when people talk about us. Amen. Would you stand and pray with me? Lord, may you make us the kind of people who do nothing from uh, vain ambition, who do nothing from selfish conceit. Make us the kind of people who in humility regard others as better than ourselves. Help us not to look at our own interests, but to look towards the interests of others. Help us to be willing to bear their burdens even if it comes at great cost. Lord, make us the kind of people who when, they, when people see us, they see Jesus. When they hear us, they hear Jesus. When they know us, through us, they know Jesus. May you make this true for us today and in the days to come. Amen.